Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? <laughs> Thank you, Rob. I hope the rest of you are equally as fantastic as Rob is. I'm sure you are fantastic after last night. Uh, just so glad to have all of you here with us this morning. You're, you're very welcome. If you have your Bibles, a Bible app on your phone or whatever it may be, flip to, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Sam just read this passage for us, but we're going to be camped out there most of our time together this morning. And today we are concluding our series, Living as a Remnant. And a few months ago, actually it was more than a few months ago, time kind of flies by, but back around like February, I had this idea, I was like, hey, we should do a series about living as a remnant. And here's the reality, this was not the idea that I had, but this has been better. It's fancy that, like God had something even better in store than what we thought, or like the idea that we had, because I think this series has actually been really helpful for us, to how do we live, how do we navigate the world in which we live. And so we've gone through a lot of different things. I just want to encourage you, if you have and you want to catch up, find the podcast. You can listen to it there, listen to it on Facebook, whatever you want to do. Um, but today we're going to wrap up that series together by walking through 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we get ready to get started, I just want to pray for us again, and then we can we'll dive in. Father, we love you, and we are just so grateful, God, that we get a chance to sit together and hear your word proclaimed. And Lord, I just pray that you're with us here over the next few minutes as we study your word. God, give us, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand. Give us the, the ability to, to just hear what you have for us today. Lord, I just pray that you will uh, just help us this, in this moment to, to hear your word. And God, that's what I pray, that it's not my words that we hear, but your word and your truth from your, from your scriptures. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be glorifying to you. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, if we were to get together a group of people, maybe in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and we got them all together in a group, and we, we were going to give them the task of, of identifying or describing the current millennial generation or the Gen Z, it would not take it long at all before the word entitled came up, right? Like, how many people have heard, heard this? Like, our world is entitled. There's nothing but entitlement. If you get on the social media, like, one of the things you'll find is that that word is almost used as a cuss word. And here's the idea, right? Like, it would not take long at all before the current generation would describe our generation as entitled, and there is some truth to that. There is actually becoming an epidemic for hiring companies, hiring entry-level positions. Because when people get out of school, they want a better job than just the entry-level position. So they're having a hard time filling those jobs. Companies have actually had to get away from the pay-by-experience scheme. Because people are coming in with no experience, demanding and wanting pay as someone who has 10 years of experience. And this is becoming a problem. We can also walk through the research and see the rise of social media influence who want to make a whole lot of money and do a whole lot of nothing but be online. And, and so this is, this is an issue, right? Here's the reality. I would define entitlement this way. Entitlement is the belief that I am owed something. Entitlement is the belief that I am owed something. And the root of entitlement can come from a number of different places, but I believe deep down it's a heart of pride. It's a heart of pride. It's a heart that forgets that other people are created in the image of God. It's a heart that forgets that what I want is not more important than what other people want. It's a heart that forgets that other people are not to be used as commodities. They're not to be manipulated, that they are people as well. And here's the, here's the truth. Like our world, it, it is a world of entitlement. But sometimes as I sit back, and we were discussing this this week, as you sit back and you look at your world, and look at our world, man, sometimes I feel sorry for the generation, right? Because they've been sold a lie of entitlement. Older people can sit back and grumble. They're so mad at people. Everybody gets a trophy. Who started giving the kids trophies? It wasn't the kids, right? Who started this? And you think about universities, for example. Universities make money hand over fist, peddling the lie. If you come to this university, you get this degree, you get an 80,000 euro of debt, you're going to get a great job, you're going to make tons of money, and everything's going to be fine, and everybody's like, sign me up for that, and then they're in, we're in trouble, right? And so there's this world of entitlement. And so what we're going to talk about today 
is how do we live in the, in the light of that reality? How do we live in this world? How do we navigate this world of entitlement, of self-centeredness, of, of meanness? I don't know if meanness is a word, but it is now. Like, just this focus on me. How do we live in that world? So what I want to do is I want to switch gears now. I don't want to be the old man yelling at people on my garden, get off my lawn. Like, we're, we're going to move away from harping on entitlement to really get to the idea of engaging in this countercultural mission. Because this is what it looks like if we live lives as followers of Jesus in an entitled generation. Our lives are going to have to be countercultural. We're going to trust the power of God and trust him in a different way. And so here's, this is going to be our springboard this morning together. As an entitled heart is in stark contrast to the life and teachings of Jesus. So as we look at our world, what we see is a heart of entitlement, a prideful heart, a selfish heart, a heart that clings to our own rights and our own desires and our own freedoms. It is in stark contrast to the life and the teachings of Jesus. Because if you think about Jesus's life, if there was ever someone who could claim his rights, it would have been Jesus. If you think about this, it, would, it was impossible for Jesus to look at himself more highly than he ought to. But yet, Jesus, he lays down his rights. He, he doesn't fight for his, what is his. He doesn't fight for his rights. If we were to open up the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we were going to look at the trial of Jesus. So when Jesus is put on trial, if we put all four of those Gospels together, what we're going to find is there is actually 10 distinct violations in the legal law that is offered towards Jesus. 10 different laws that are broken when Jesus is on trial. And here, here, here they are. Number one is Jesus was arrested through a bribe. It was against the law. Couldn't do that. Jesus was arrested without a specific charge. You guessed it. Against the law. Jesus' trial was held at night. Against the law. There was a false witnesses with, with, with uh, conflicting stories. Anybody want to guess what that was? Against the law, right? And we see this there. Jesus, he was not allowed to cross-examine the witnesses. He was asked to incriminate himself. You guys remember, there's this question that's asked to Jesus, are you the son of God? You couldn't incriminate yourself. Oddly enough, Jesus answers that question. Even though it's against the law, he answers that question. The high priest declared Jesus' sentence without asking for a vote. He was struck in the face during his trial without just cause. The charges against him were changed when he was transferred to Pilate. So first it was blasphemy. Then he was leading a revolution. So the laws, they change. And Jesus was convicted and he was sentenced on the same day. So 10 different moments in about an hour period of Jesus's life where his rights were thrown onto the side and he did not claim his rights. He did not say, well, hey, that's against the law. You can't do that. He did not claim a mistrial. And Jesus just... He goes with it. So in his life, Jesus did not cling to his rights. In his life, he did not say, you know, this is what's owed to me. This is what I deserve. This is my freedom. This is what I'm entitled to. Jesus doesn't do that in his life. He also doesn't do that in his teaching. So we see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is on a mountain. He's teaching this incredible sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he says. He teaches this. He says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat your cloak as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. So here's what we're going to see is Jesus doesn't just live this out, but he calls us as followers of Jesus to live this way. And as we walk through this, the first thing Jesus says is if someone slaps you on the right cheek in the first century, just like the 21st century, the majority of people in the world were right handed. And so to be able to be slapped on the right cheek, you would have to be, it's a backhand, right? That's how you would hit someone on the right cheek. Now, to backhand someone in the face was not meant to be painful. It was not meant to be hurt, like physically hurting. It was a sign of humiliation. It was a sign of just being, rejecting them and to humiliate a person. And Jesus says, Someone slaps you on the right cheek. We don't fight for our rights. We don't stand up for our pride. My pride has been wounded. I'm going to fight for that. Jesus says, no, we offer them the other cheek as well. And we see in the life of Jesus, Jesus was, was part of this, this really cruel game at his trial called Whack-A-Prophet. 
where they would have put a bag over Jesus' head. Some people would have punched him in the mouth or in the face and said, hey, prophet, tell us who punched you. So not only does Jesus say to do this, Jesus does this. The next thing, if, if you go to court and you, you lose your shirt, Jesus says, give them your coat too, your cloak. And here's the thing, in the Levitical law, if, you, if someone had your cloak, by law, they had to give it back to you before nightfall. Because not only was it a coat for wearing, it was also like doubled or as, a, uh, as a, a sleeping bag, a thing that pe- would have kept people warm. And so by law, if someone had your coat, had your cloak, they had to give it back to you. And Jesus says, you know what? It doesn't matter what the law says. If they take that too, we're going to be extra generous. We're going to give that away as well. And if we remember the life of Jesus when he's on the cross, there's some soldiers under the foot of the cross gambling for, for what? Gambling for his clothes. Probably the only cloak that the man owns. They're gambling for it. Jesus gives it away as well. The final thing he says is if the soldier, if the Roman soldier demands that you carry the gear for a mile, carry it two miles. So what would have happened for a Jew in that day? The Roman authorities would have been the, the leaders. They would have been the, the ruling people of the day. And they were like the anti-Jews, right? And so what they would do is a way to humiliate the Jews, to remind them who is in charge, who is most powerful. They could go up to any Jew, regardless of what was happening, and say, hey, you carry my gear. And you had to do it for up to a mile. Not a step farther, but up for a mile. And Jesus says, you know what, if that happens, be extra humiliated. Go even farther. Take it even farther than what is demanded of you by the law. And here's where the, the analogies kind of break down. Because Jesus didn't carry a Roman soldier's gear. He did carry a Roman cross. And he walked to the place where he was going to die. And so Jesus is saying, we do not cling to our rights. We do not fight for our freedoms. We do not just hold and grasp and cling to what we are entitled to. Rather, we lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. There may be no bigger countercultural statement in a world of entitlement than to lay our rights down. Than to give up our, what, what is owed to us for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of the gospel. So we do not live lives of entitlements. Rather, we live lives of servanthood, like our leader, Jesus. And so what I love as we dive into the first Peter is first or first Peter, also second Peter. Peter was a follower of Jesus. Peter was one of the 12 followers, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And so when Peter is writing this letter, he, and he's telling us to live this way. He is teaching us to live like the guy that he had learned from. He's showing us how to live like Jesus lived. And so multiple times throughout this series, we've referenced the book of first Peter. And there's, there's a reason for that. And one of the things I love is, is Peter was, first Peter was written to exiles from exile. So if you look at the end of, end of 1 Peter, in chapter 5, the very end, Peter writes, and the church of Babylon sends its greetings. That sounds well and good, except Babylon is like non-existent anymore. And so what happens is like Babylon would have been used as like a, a metaphor for Rome. And so Paul, Peter is writing this from Rome, but this idea, this is the idea of exile, this idea of, of being in exile and being in Babylon. And that's what he's saying. So he's writing to the exiles from exile. And as we read through the New Testament, exile was both a reality and a metaphor. And so it's, it's a reality and a metaphor. And let's, with that in mind, pick up chapter 2. Verse 11, 1 Peter. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, exiles, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your soul. As we start out this morning, we cannot miss this fact, is there is a war for our soul. There is a war for our soul. It's the first thing that Peter is reminding us as exiles, as people living in a land that's far from God, as people living for God in a land far from him, be reminded that there is a war for our souls. Friends, if you don't hear anything else, I want to make sure we hear this. This is not a playground. This is a battleground. And I believe that Satan would love nothing more for us to live life, walk through life thinking that this is just a playground. 
everything's safe, everything's fine. We're going to sit here on the swings and we're going to enjoy that. We're going to go down the slide. We're going to sit on the bench in the sun and act like everything's okay. But the reality is this is a battleground. This is not a playground. There is a war that is going on for our very souls. Friends, there is an absolute all-out assault on your heart, on your loyalty, on your, on your allegiance. And I think Satan would be really happy if we acted like that reality wasn't true. So the first thing Peter is letting us know is like, there is a war going on for your very soul, for your heart. A few months ago, or a few weeks ago, rather, I, uh, I was listening to a podcast. And in this podcast, there was an interview with this guy called Andy Crouch. And Andy Crouch is a fantastic Christian thinker. recommend listening to some of his stuff. But he was talking about this idea of idolatry. And so he's kind of walking through like what idolatry is. And as we follow it through the scriptures, what makes idolatry a temptation for us is idols, they, they promise us everything and cost us nothing. Like that's the lie, right? That idols will, will give us the world but cost us nothing. And the problem with idols is if they start that way. And then it begins to change where they start costing us everything but give us nothing. And they started tracking through the, the history of Israel. And what, we, what he finds is, and what we see, is what eventually what idols cost us isn't our own lives, but the lives of our children. And what we see, and this is the moment for Israel, like when they finally go into literal exile to Babylon, it's when they have started offering child sacrifices to the false god of Moloch. Then God is like, that's enough. That's, that's too much. Like, we're, we're done with this. And they begin to go in exile. And so as I was listening to this podcast and I was listening to this moment of like, what idols cost us? Like, I was in tears listening to this because it was revealed in my heart in this moment that there was, there was an idol in my life and it was social media. And so what I did is like immediately when I did this, I paused the podcast and I just prayed and I cried and I prayed and I went to my phone. And I, I signed out of all the social media apps on my phone. And you know what? Here's what happened. I still wasn't right in my soul. Something still wasn't right within me. And so I was like, okay, I've got to delete all my apps off my phone. And so I removed all the social media apps off of my phone. Now, I'm not anti-social media. Like, I still get on it from time to time. It's on my iPad, on my computer. But the thing that spends 90% of the time in my pocket or within proximity to me I had to get rid of it because it was becoming an idol to me. And here's the reality. Was it really costing the lives of my children? Literally? No. But figuratively, if I have 18 to 20 some years with my kids and them under my roof and I am sitting there reading a book to them and I get a ding on my watch or my phone and I'm looking to see what this little bird just told me. And before I know it, my kids are gone. They're running around doing something else. It will become an idol in my life. And here's the thing, if you would have asked me two weeks ago, Luke, are you addicted to social media? I mean, I would say, yeah, I, I like it, but I'm not addicted. But, you know, what else am I supposed to do when there's a three-second lag in a conversation with my wife other than pour out my phone? I, I mean, what am I supposed to do when the next Netflix show is starting to start? Like, what am I supposed to do in those little moments? Like, I wouldn't say I was addicted. I just have a really good idea of how much money is now in my bank account because my banking app has replaced my phone, my social media app. And when I pull out my phone and just muscle memory touch the app, I'm like, oh, that's how much. Like, I wasn't addicted though, right? Yeah, absolutely. But it was this idol in my life. And so why did I get rid of it? Because, because I was letting a little bird or an X, whatever it is now, I was letting a blue F. I was letting a picture box of a pink and purple picture box rule my life. I was letting that be the, the thing that I turned to in any other moment. It was the thing that was waging war against my soul. And the reality is there is a war for our souls. There is a battle that is going on in our lives. This week I was reading an article that was uh, talking about movies with terrible moral lessons. And so some of these movies, quite a few of them I've never seen before. And as I was reading the, the moral lesson in the movie, I don't know why anyone would have seen it, but here's, here's a few of them. One of the movies mentioned was Wedding Crashers. Apparently it's a bad thing to manipulate women with emotions for sex. Not a good idea, right? There's the movie Fight Club. 
Like who needs medication and therapy when you can deal with schizophrenia with violence? Then there's the movie Risky Business that centers on a teenager who turns his house into a brothel and becomes a pimp. Great idea, right? And then there was the movie Frozen on the list, and I'm like, all right, this article is rubbish. That movie is fantastic. I've seen it like 7,000 times, right? And so then I start reading it, and I'm like, well, maybe there's a reason I don't have to watch this another 48 times. Like, and so, but the idea was that running away from your problems and expecting everyone else to clean up your mess is not a good idea, all right? So I was like, okay, fine, I can see that. Or also with, with Anna, like trusting every single person that you know, like not a good idea. But there's the, here's this thing though. Here's why I bring it up. This was not a Christian article. This was not the Gospel Coalition. This was not Unplugged who were writing this article. This was a secular news site who was writing about these movies with terrible morals, confirming the fact that our world, there is an attack on our hearts in our world. There is an all-out assault. We are being formed. Our spirits are being formed. And so what are we going to do about it? Because here's the reality. When it comes to this idea of like being prepared, fighting against the, the war that's on our souls, willpower is not enough. If you are to put me in a room and to sit a donut in front of me, I can say many, many times, I won't eat the donut. I won't eat the donut. I won't eat the donut. You guys know what's going to happen. You're like, yeah, look at you. We know what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to eat the donut, right? That is just what's going to happen. I'm just going to give in. I'm going to eat the donut because willpower is not enough. Something needs to change. You put a, I don't know, like spinach in front of me. No problem, right? But like you eat, our willpower is not going to be enough. We've got to not only just stay away from bad things, but there's got to be this change that happens in our lives. There's this transformation that has to happen. So we move away from our worldly desires by changing them with some good desires. We're doing some spiritual discipline, some things in our lives that change to change us. And here's the idea. Like, I know at least last night, there's a few of you in the room prayed for 80 minutes. Right? And it worked because South Africa won the, won the World Cup. Congratulations, South Africans, right? Those 80 minutes of prayer last night, it worked. Didn't work when you played Ireland, but it did work last night, so congratulations. Um, but like, here's the, these spiritual disciplines, these things that we do. We replace our bad and evil, sinful, worldly desires with, with our spiritual desires. And Peter gets to that in verse 12. He says this He says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Even when they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And I love what Peter does for us here. In verse 11, it says, stay away from evil things. In verse 12, it's the other side of the coin. It says, cling to do these good things because it's this matter. Like we can't just willpower our way through this. We've got to change our behavior. We've got to change our life. But I love that first two words. It says, be careful. Be careful. Be intentional. Stephen talked about this last week. We are not going to naturally float into to spirit, good spiritual formation. We are not just going to naturally glide along into a missionally charged life. We are not just going to naturally fall into right relationship with God. It's not, we're, we have to be intentional. We have to be careful. And I want you to think about this for a second. If you are to tell someone to be careful, there's, there's something going on around them, right? Because here's the reality. If I see you sitting on the couch, I'm not going to come up to you and be like, hey, be careful. You might be too comfortable sitting there. You might enjoy the movie too much if you're sitting there. Be careful. Or if my kids are frolicking around in a field that's empty and nice, I'm not going to say, be careful, kids. You might have too much fun out there. Like, we're not going to do that. No. No, it's when my kid is like jumping from rock to rock and they, I see the cliff that's about to fall. I'm like, hey, be careful. When there's danger around is when we see, is when we say be careful. This is what Peter, he sees, he sees the danger that perhaps we don't see. And he's like, hey guys, you need to be careful. You need to be mindful. You need to watch out about what's happening here. And one of the things I love as Peter sets up this passage in verse 12, talking about the things that we do, the good things that we do, the way that we live, here's the connection that he's making. It is not their location, but their actions that make them exiles. And I think this is really important to us. 
Because when we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes to a group of exiles who are more than likely born in this place, who have been living here for a while. And they're like, what do you mean I'm an exile? This is my home. But what Peter is saying that it is our actions as followers of Jesus, not our location that makes us exiles. Just think about, think about your own life. Think about the way that you live in the world as a follower of Jesus and how that seems so weird and so different to our, to our watching world. Just start from right now. What you're doing on a Sunday morning. You're not going out for brunch unless you call biscuits brunch. Like You're not, you're not doing that. You're, you're coming, you're committing, you're being here together. You're not lying in. That's, that's a decision that we make. When we choose to forgive our neighbor... And to, to love our neighbor, that seems foreign to our watching world. When we commit, when we give away 10% of everything that we make, it seems financially irresponsible. But as a follower of Jesus, like this is what we do. And it seems weird. It seems foreign to our world. And here's what Peter is getting at. I want to make sure that we don't miss. It's not just the, the things that we don't do that make us foreign. It's the things that we do. Listen, don't miss me on this. As followers of Jesus, we want to be known not just for what we are against, but also what we're for. I think all too often Christians are just known, oh, they're against this, they're against that, and they're sure, there are things that we take a stand against. But what if people knew also what we're for? That we're for freedom. We're for human rights. We're for people being set free. We're for love. We're for forgiveness. We're for grace. We're for the prosperity of our village. We're for people being set free. What if people knew that as followers of Jesus? Like when they saw you and they're like, that's what they're for. So as followers, like we don't want to just be known what we're against, but also what we're for and who we're for. Again, Peter says, he says, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they won't be able to find anything wrong in you. I'm reminded of the story of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. This is before Daniel is getting ready to be thrown into the lion's den. And so I'll let, let Daniel tell us the story here. Starting in verse 3 of Daniel 6. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officials. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officials began searching for some fault in Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Just a little humor here. Daniel wrote this book, so probably not humble, but at least he's got those things going on, right? Then they concluded, catch this, don't miss this, verse 5. The only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connections with the rules of his religion. The only hope that they had of finding something against Daniel was the way that he worshipped God. Man, what if that was said of us? What if that was said of us? That the only thing that people could hold against us, the only way people could accuse us was the way that we live for Jesus. What if the only negative thing someone could say about you is like they are really quick to forgive? Or what if the only negative thing about you that people could say was, well, that person at their job, they are willing to do the job that no one else wants to do. They're willing to do the gross, nasty things that everyone else turns away. They're willing to do that. What if the only thing that could be said about you is you are a person that can be taken of their, your word every single time? What if the only thing that could be said about you is because you are foolish with your money because you give to those who are in need? What if the only negative thing about you could be said that when people treat you poorly, you respond with love and grace, and kindness and forgiveness? That's the call. That's the lives that Peter is calling us to live. Slip, flip to verse 17. Peter wraps up this teaching by saying this. He says, respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. And here's what would have happened in that day when this was written. What would have happened is, is this would have been a single letter that would have been circulated to the believers. And so it would have been read out loud. 
And so from time to time, when we walk through a book at church together, that's how we start the series, by just reading the entire letter out loud, because that was how it was read in the first century. And so I can just imagine there's this group of followers of Jesus who's reading Peter's letter, and they get to verse 17, and they say, respect everyone. And I just picture the crowd be like, amen. Or then they say, like, love the families of believers. And they, maybe they put an arm around their brother next to him, like, yeah, dude, I love you, man. I'm just so glad. I love that. And then he goes on to say, fear God. And I just picture everyone being like, praise the Lord. Yes, we'll do that. And then Peter says, respect the king. And I think there would have been an audible gasp in the room. Wait, come, come again? Because I think you just said, I think you just read, respect the king. And in that moment, there would have been an undeniable shift from joy and rejoicing to disdain. Because here's the reality. King Nero, at the time that Peter is writing this, he's not a top-notch human being. And what happened in Rome in this moment that has led to the exiles and to, led to persecution of the Christians in this moment is there was a fire that broke out in Rome and the Christians got blamed for it. There's some other things that happened, but that's pr predominantly what happened is they blamed the Christians for the destruction of what was happening in Rome. And so there was persecution that broke out among Christians. In fact, some of you have been to Rome. You've been to the Colosseum. You've heard some of the stories of, of Christians that would have been captured and taken to the Colosseum to be slaughtered by gladiators for, for, as a spectacle, as a game. There would have been Christians who Nero would have taken hides of different animals, wrapped them around them, and, sit, and put his hunting dogs on them to attack and to kill them. Make matters even worse, there would have been Christians who were taken, they were rolled in pitch, impaled on a pole, lit on fire to light Nero's garden parties. And Peter says, hey, respect that guy. Respect the king. And like in this moment, maybe they even picture, maybe they've had nightmares for years of their loved ones screaming on fire, lighting a garden party. And Peter says, respect the king. And like, no, thanks, Peter. I don't want to do that. Or maybe they just envision, they have terrors of, of, the, of, the, of the Colosseum and seeing what has happened and seeing what has transpired there. And like, the last thing that I want to do is to respect the king. But here's the reality. Is we are always called to love and to respect hard people. We are always called to love and to respect hard people. It is a distinguishing characteristic of us as followers of Jesus that these are going to be the people that we love and that we respect, we care for. Jesus in, in Matthew or in Luke chapter 6, here's what Jesus says. He says, If you love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And you do good to those who do good for you. Why should you get any credit for that? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money to only those who can repay you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Here's the, here's the teaching. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be, pay, without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. And I'll be real honest, as I read this teaching of 1 Peter, I really wish I could scribble out, respect the King. I wish I could remove that hard person. Right? I, I, anybody with me there? Like, just think about who is that person in your life? Who is that hard person that the very last thing that you want to do is love them? Who is that person in your life that the very last thing you want to do is to, to respect them and care about them? Like, who is that person? And Peter is saying, yeah, even them. Perhaps especially them. Because this is the way of the faithful remnant. This is the way of the followers of Jesus. Because here's the reality, friends. Exile is not safe. Living out God's mission is not safe. Participating in God's countercultural mission in exile certainly is not safe. You guys want to know how, how Peter's story ends? When Peter writes, you know, respect the king, respect the emperor, whatever your translation is. It's Nero at the time. Anybody have a guess who has Peter executed? Nero. 
It's that guy. The guy that Peter is saying, respect the king. He is the one who has Peter executed. Because here's the reality, living as a faithful remnant. I mean, it's not safe. It's not safe. So if we were back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, or verse 16, I'm sure maybe when we were reading this, you were hoping we skipped it when we went to 17. We're not skipping it, don't worry. Peter says, for you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So do not use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. You are free, but you are God's slaves. Do not use your freedom to, as an excuse to do evil. So if you're going to look this up, we're going to see what we're going to do. How do we live? We are free, and here's how we are free to live. Verse 12 tells us we are free to live good and proper lives. As we look at the Greek language, there are actually two words that is used for the word, for the word good. And the one that is used here is actually the word that can be translated winsome, beautiful, or attractive. And here's what Peter is telling us, is that we live lives that are beautiful and attractive to a watching world. We live in a way that is beautiful, that is winsome, that is attractive, that is skeptical in a, a world apart from God, away from God sees. And like that is something beautiful about the way that you live. A few weeks ago, we were having a conversation with a neighbor and we're talking about you know, when we see homeless people on the street. One of the things we said is like every once in a while, sometimes like when they say they're hungry, we'll just go and buy them a meal. And the lady was just undone by that. She was like, oh my gosh, that is so nice. Now, this isn't our own idea. Like we've seen tons of people do this, but that's winsome. That's beautiful. That's attractive. When we are people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, that's an attractive lifestyle. When we are when we're not cynical, man, that's attractive. That's a winsome attitude. There's this guy, this Christian guy that I know, and like he is one of the most incredible human beings that I know. Stephen and Alyssa know him as well, and I was actually joking with Stephen about him the other day. There's just something about him. I was like, can you just be mean to me for a second? Like, you're just too nice. You're too kind. Like, there is no possible way to be in around this guy to not feel encouraged and loved. And he's so humble. I was like, at least have something wrong with you, dude. And it's like, he's just so full of the Holy Spirit that when you're in relationship, when you're close to him, it feels like you're, you're in heaven. And that's winsome. And that's beautiful. What if as followers of Jesus, we celebrated people? Like maybe even coworkers who are getting the promotion over us and we're just thrilled for them and we celebrate them. We're happy for them and genuinely happy for them. Like it's beautiful. It's attractive. It's the life that we are meant to live. And this is what Peter is calling us to. The next thing we're free to do is in verse three and, or 13 and 14 is to submit. To submit to the, to the authorities around us because we believe and we trust that God has placed them and he has ordained them in their position. And I'll be real honest. If you guys were around during the COVID lockdowns, it was really hard to respect the government. Right? Because there were things that we had, we were told to do that we didn't want to do. I didn't want to wear a mask. I didn't want to not be able to see people. Like, I didn't want to spend two meters away from people. Like, I didn't want to do these things. And I'll be honest, I failed at times. But it was this real wrestling of like respecting the authority that God had put in place. Because as followers of Jesus, as long as their authorities don't contradict that of Scripture, we respect, we submit. And that's what we're free to do. The next thing that we do in verse 15 is we live honorably. We live honorable lives. To live honorably is simply to do good, to do what is right. One of the things I tell my, my basketball boys that I coach and I tell our girls all the time is this simple statement, right is right even if no one else is doing it. And wrong is wrong even if everyone is doing it. And this is, this is how we live. We live, we do what is right, even if everyone around us is doing the opposite. And we, we do what is right, even when the whole world, when, our, when we're here in exile, when we're doing these things, we're living in this way, like even when it seems like, well, everyone else is doing it, why does it matter? We live honorable lives. We do what is right, what God has called for us. The final thing we're free to do in verse 17 is we're free to respect and to love. Because here's the truth. 
It is our love for each other. It is our love for other people that will proclaim to a watching and a skeptical world the truth of the gospel. When Jesus goes and he says, it is your love, it's by your love that people are going to know you're my follower. And so this is what we do. We live in a way that points a watching world to the truth about Jesus. And so as we do all of these things, here's what happens. We live as God's people for the glory of God to bear witness to God. If we look at these verses, look at verse 12. It says, they will give honor to God. Verse 13, for the Lord's sake. Verse 15, it is God's will. Like Jesus says in, on the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. But they will see your good deeds and they won't say, man, you are an incredible human being. No, they will praise your Father in heaven. This is the reason we live this way is so people can see Jesus. They can see God, not to just say you're a top-notch human being. Like that's not, the, that's not the goal here. And I just want to make a really important distinction on this. We live like Peter is calling us to live, not to gain the Father's love or approval, but because we are already loved. We live the way that Peter calls us to live, not to earn God's affection, not to earn God's love, but out of an overflow of the love that we have already received from him. We don't live this way so God will love us more. We are already loved by the Father. And because of that, this type of life, this type of love, it flows out of us naturally. And so the conditions of exile, it gives us the choice every single day. We wake up and we choose who are we going to serve. We're going to cling to our rights. We're going to cling to, to our entitlement and our freedoms. Are we going to cling to that or are we going to use our freedom to love other people? Here's what I want to make sure we don't miss. Is the way of Jesus isn't a strategy. It's an identity. The way of Jesus, it is not a strategy. Peter is not writing this to be like, okay, here, gather in, folks. You want to evangelize your area. Here's the five steps to do this. This is not a strategy. This is not some life hack. This is an identity. Peter is saying, no, if you are in relationship with Jesus, this is what our lives begin to look like. We live properly. We live honorably. honorably. We submit. We respect. We love others because of who we are, because of that is who he is. And sure, it'll be a thing that people see and like, wow, this is beautiful. This is incredible. And it is to bear witness to God, but this is not some strategy that we just try to employ. It's our identity of who we are. Once again, this isn't a life hack. This is a pledge of allegiance. And so again, in verse 16, Peter says, you are free, but you are God's slaves. Do not use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Paul, in Galatians 5, 13, he picks up on this idea as well. He says, you have been called to freedom, my dear brothers and sisters, but do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, serve one another in love. So Peter and Paul both say we're free and we're free to use our lives to serve one another in love. So here's what I want to do for us. I'm going to introduce a mantra, a little statement that you can say to yourself. It's four words, 14 letters, not too complicated. It's simply this. This is my chance. I just want to encourage you guys just to say this with me on, on the count of three. We're going to say this is my chance. Okay, One, two, three. This is my chance. This is my chance. To that hard or that hateful coworker who takes all the credit for your work and that you just find hard to love, you say, this is my chance to love them like God does because he does not treat me as my sins deserve. To that unrepented family member, we say, this is my chance to show them that God gives grace to those even when they're unrepentant. He offers that grace to that homeless and that needy person. We say, this is my chance to show them the love that the Father has lavished upon us. To the church member who has hurt you, you say, this is my chance to show how love covers over a magnitude of sin, multitude of sins. To the person who said something that was hurtful to you and cut you deeply, 
You, you say, this is my chance. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because I'm going to see the best of them even when they were in their worst because while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, for that person who is so incredibly slow at the till or on the N59. We say, this is my chance <clears throat> to remember that God does not understand slowness the way that we do. He is patient, wanting everyone to come to repentance and come to the reality of knowing him. And so we live our lives by saying, this is my chance. This is my chance to love. This is my chance to serve. This is my chance to give. This is my chance to forgive. This is my chance to bear somebody's burden. This is my chance to serve. We live with this mantra and saying, this is my chance. Because you have been called to freedom my dear brothers and sisters, but do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, serve one another in love. Back in 1989, and there was a, a massive oil tanker from Exxon that crashed into a reef outside of the shore of Prince William Sound in Alaska. And like when we say a massive oil like ship, this spilled more than 10,000 or 10 million gallons of oil into the ocean. The spill covered a total of 11,000 square miles of the ocean and 1,300 miles of, of shoreline. It was a big mess, clearly. And so there was analysis, there was research that was done to see what was the cause of the crash? What caused this to happen? And what they found is there was faulty equipment and in inexperienced sailors who didn't know the, the treacherous waters of the sound. And so when they found this out, you know what they, what they did? They changed some laws. Did they require that each ship have state-of-the-art equipment? No. Did they require each ship to have a skilled sailor on there who knew the waters? No. But what came into law now is that every single, even now, every single ship that comes into Prince William Sound has to stop outside of the Sound and be tethered to a towboat who knows the area well, and they lead them through the waters. And so what they're finding is the only way to successfully navigate the waters, the only way to get their, their load into the harbor is if they surrender to someone who knows best. And the same thing is true of us, is that success comes through surrender. We surrender to Jesus. We tether our lives to Jesus, knowing that he knows how to operate. No, he knows how to do these things. And what we see is we read through these scriptures and like, Jesus, this is hard. I don't understand it, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to tether my life to you and allow you to lead me in the direction that I need to go. And here's the thing. Although we are in exile, there is no doubt about the fact that we are in exile. Hope is not lost because ours is an exile of victory. And as we wrap up this series, here's what I want to make sure we do not miss is that Jesus is the true and the better exile. Because Jesus was the one who was exiled from heaven and came to earth. Jesus was the one who dealt with exile, who came from, who, who left the side of God and put on a human body. Jesus was the one who was ostracized and exiled from his family members and from his friends. Jesus was the one who was exiled in a garden and his friends abandoned him and fell asleep. Jesus was the one who was exiled to a cross while all his friends ran away. Jesus was the one who was exiled into a tomb. But three days later, Jesus walks out of the grave. He walks out of the tomb, and when he does, he comes as the true and the better exile who brings us exile of victory. So we're not living this life in a position of fear. We're not living this life out of posture of defeat, but rather a posture of victory because Jesus has defeated the world. Jesus has overcome the world. So as we get ready to, to wrap up the sermon, I just want us to have a, we're going to have an invitation time. And here's the thing, like we don't do this every single week because we believe in a lot of ways that the gospel is the invitation. But I, what I want to do for us here in the next few minutes is just kind of walk us through some things, some ways that perhaps as we've walked through this series, that you've seen some things in your life and you know that there's some decisions that need to be made. So maybe today, maybe today you have never actually tethered your life to Jesus in any way. So my encouragement today is, may that be the day that you do that.
You accept him. You live out of the reality of Jesus being the true and better exile. You accept him as your Lord and your Savior. Maybe today. There's, you gave your life to Jesus a long time ago. You were baptized. You've received salvation. But there's some, just some areas in your life that since that surrender to Jesus that you've just kind of picked back up again. You're like, Jesus, I want to I hold on to these. My career or my friends or my free time, I want to hold on to these and we don't give them back to Jesus. And what I want to encourage you guys to do, maybe today's the day you say, okay, Jesus, you can have control over these again. Maybe you've been coming, maybe you've been in relationship with Jesus for years. And as we read about this idea of being free, that's the last thing that you feel in your heart. Maybe there's this sin of the past, this sin from decades ago that just keeps you feel, feeling like you're a captive. You can't break free of that. Here's the reality. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. And you're free. So maybe today the decision that you make is to walk in the freedom that Jesus has dealt with on the cross that he has given you once and for all. Maybe as we've walked through this series, you looked at your life, you've examined some things, you're saying, man, my life looks a whole, a whole lot more like Babylon than it looks like the New Jerusalem. And maybe for you, there's a few people in this room that you've got to come alongside and say, hey, can you help me? Can you hold me accountable there? Because I want to be a person that, that walks in the way of Jesus and the true and the better exile. And so find a few people who can walk with you through this. Maybe today you just need some prayer. You just need somebody to pray with you and for you. And so I've asked a few people, Steve, or, uh, Sam and Alyssa, I've already asked them before, if you guys need somebody to pray with you, pray for you, during the songs, after the service, any time during that, just go and just you can find them. Ask them to pray for you. You can give them as much information or as little information as you want. I don't care. If you just need somebody to pray for you, like go and ask some people. It's funny, I've been praying this week that you would ask for prayer if you need prayer. So whatever your decision is, man, I pray that today is the day we do because we have a leader who knows how to successfully navigate exile. And we can tether and we can cling our lives to him. And so he can walk us in the direction that he wants us to go. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. God, we're just grateful for who you are.